Yo, 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 are you down with GBP? Yeah, you know me. That's a good follow podcast for those of y'all who don't know. What is up, everyone? I am Chris Sinclair, and I am joined by my fellow host, Drew Garrison. We are a couple of self-proclaimed booze pundits with a lifetime of industry experience reaching back to the day of washing dishes and cleaning them pizza ovens all the way to owning multiple businesses and selling some of the most exclusive brands in the world. Our goal is to walk you through today's most interesting alcohol industry headlines while sipping some amazing drinks as we do what we do. Drew, what are we covering today, homie? Chris, uh, I'm not going to be rapping, but we definitely have some fun things to cover today. Also, some sad things to cover. Um, That one, first and foremost, being the glass fire, which is devastating the Napa area right now. We're also going to look into some new bills that have been introduced in South Carolina that's going to change the game for distribution in that state. And then we're going to talk about one of our favorite topics, which is um, whiskey auctions and how the biggest collection just hit auction. We're going to give you some details on that. Of course, we'll have our dope follows of the week as well. But before we get to all of that, what are you drinking, bud? I am uh, messing up with scrolling on my screen here. So sorry, everybody. (laughs) It's not working. (laughs) I can't do the thing. You can't do the you can't do the the noise effect. Uh, You you know what? um, this proves no matter what you do, you can do it well. Well, you could do it as long as you, you know, keep your mind focused and you, you know, whatever. What are, what are we proving? I don't feel like we're proving anything. Oh. <laughs> I did it. And now you can rap if you want. <laughs> just imagine just like, you know, a week of two weeks of rust has done to us. Like we just can't even hit. Hit our marks anymore. I can't use two fingers to scroll on my mouse pad. I need this wine. I am drinking some Joseph Swan uh, Val de Gay from uh, 2017. It is freaking delicious. I love this wine. It's probably one of my favorites that's in the shop right now. It's uh, uh, while Val de Gay tends to be light and fruity and um, still nuanced, but uh, I like this because it's got a little bit more. Uh, aging characteristics to it it is a little bit spicier still still on the subtle side of things uh, but but just just a great fucking wine when you say subtle what do you mean like- well you know how um you can uh, let's go to the other end of the spectrum we'll go with like napa cabs um how they're just giant spicy you can you can almost you can smell them uh, without even putting your nose in the glass. Uh, this guy requires a little bit more attention. Um, it's not as uh, verbose, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's got it's 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 tamed down just a little bit. Uh, I opened this bottle yesterday, and I did not want to finish it because I definitely wanted to drink it on tonight's podcast. Ooh. You're so resistance. Good for you. That's hard to do with a good wine. Well, and you know, you know me. I is not my strong suit. Telling myself no. No. Well, yeah. I mean, especially when you have you know glasses big enough that can hold the whole bottle. So you're like, I only did one glass, so it's really not that bad. That's right. Take that, Ossifer. <laughs> what, what are you drinking? <laughs> well, a little bit. You know, pretty much the opposite spectrum. I am. I'm actually drinking one of our newest whiskeys that we just added to the portfolio. Um, it's from from a 10th Street Distillery, which is something that I believe that that I've shared on the podcast before. I'm not 100% sure, but I think I have. Um, they're, a, they're a distillery that's actually out of San Jose, California, and they do some really awesome single malts. And so their peated was one that I actually found pleasantly surprising when I first heard that we were getting it. I was like, I was like, oh man, we're getting another, you know, $60 single malt from a place that we haven't heard of before. Um, but then when I found out it was peated, I was like, oh, that's awesome. I'm definitely more interested in it now. And then when I actually got to taste it, it was uh, even better than I expected it was going to be. And they've done a lot of fun things. Um, they've also done an STR cask. They've done a, uh, a port cask. And they've also done a couple different cuts on their 
on their whiskeys. But the most recent one that they did, which I thought was really cool, is they actually did their first blend. And what they did was they took two of their single malt offerings and then they did two light whiskeys and then blended those together, uh, basically with the intent that you would just drink these in highballs. Like most, like most blends tend to, you know, go well in, in highballs. Um, but it's actually pretty tasty on its own, which you actually don't see very often. So, so I'm sipping on that tonight and it's, it's really nice. It's called the 10th street, California coast. And it's got some cool labeling. It definitely invokes the, you know, California lifestyle. It's got like a beach and stuff like that. So it's kind of a fun offering and, uh, I'm excited. I'm excited they rolled out with this one because it's, it's cocktail friendly. It's cocktail friendly price as well. So it's, uh, it's exciting. And they just, they're just expanding so rapidly. They're just offering more and more and more. And anytime that you can do that as a young distillery, I mean, it means that you're obviously having a little bit of success that you continue to expand those programs and, you know, the lines and stuff like that. And then, uh, you know, they're just kind of getting a bunch of awards right now too. So they're doing something right. And yeah, we're lucky enough to, I, to, to drink it and sell it. I like, I like their juice, man. It's uh, I was, I, uh, I was in the same boat uh, as you when you first approached me with them. Um, I was I was skeptical to say the best, say the best, say the least. There we go. Um, but it was uh, it's damn good whiskey. I I like you also like the the peated more. Um, do you want to explain for our for our listeners what STR means? Yeah, so so STR is going to be a shave, toasted, and then recharred barrel it's actually a, a barrel style that was that was started by the late uh dr jim swan who has you know advised on multiple projects across uh, across the world including kilhoman cavalon um mnh distillery and it was just a typically what i what i've seen it done with is like old wine cask and so and so there's that. And then, like I said, there's there's some light whiskey in there as well. And what light whiskey means is it was either put into a uh, used or neutral barrel. So there's really not a whole lot of going on with that. So so those are those are kind of like maybe the two things that people might not be as familiar with when it comes I, to some of those terms. I was having a conversation with uh, with a friend t- uh, today actually uh she she had purchased a bottle of the spaniard from compass box for me and um it's a great it's a great whiskey it's a fantastic whiskey and she great packaging too oh yeah the the compass box is really uh um re repackaged rebranded everything in a really lovely way um but i she was asking me what the difference between uh you know a blended whiskey you know, if it's just called whiskey or if it's a scotch or, if it, you know, single malts are the only thing that could be called scotch or um, or all single malts are scotch, so on and so forth. And and really what I, I, I told her was I broke it down and I was like, look, um, blends are for consistency and single uh, uh, single malts are, you know, you get a little bit more inconsistency. Uh, inconsistencies theoretically from year to year, which would probably used to be true a long time ago. Uh, I'd say a lot less so now. I think I think um, blending techniques and distillation techniques are at a premium uh, nowadays. And so I think really it's just good whiskey is good whiskey and bad whiskey is bad whiskey. Uh, I don't think anybody should, should uh, stick to the single malt are good and blends are bad, especially when you have a company like Compass Box out there that is just yeah, I mean, rushing the they, blending game. They for sure changed a lot of that narrative. And, you know, I think a lot of people got um, got down on blends because, you know, the assumption is like, oh, well, it's not all just malted barley, but it's other grains as well. And that's one of the ways that they're able to kind of cut down on the cost and and you know, offer things that are like that, but there's plenty of great blends that are out there. And sometimes, you know, you do have to kind of seek them out. And if you can find one that has a higher malted barley to grain ratio, you can really get some fun offerings at really, really affordable pricing. And, um, you know, there's just a little bit of, a little bit of exploration that has to go. I mean, there's plenty of single malts that are 
that are terrible. So it's not, there's no guarantees when it comes to this stuff. And yeah, to your point, it's just kind of like, if it's good, it's good. It doesn't matter if it, if it's a blended whiskey or if it's a single, you know, single malt. So I I'm with you on that. And compass box for sure is one of those, one of those companies that I think chain has changed the perception of the entire category because what they do is just really, really special and really incredible. Um, I just really dig dig their stuff from for pretty much all of it. I can't think of too many that I really don't care for, but it's just uh, the Spaniard is is definitely my favorite out of all of them. Agreed. Okay, well, looks like uh, now it's time for our opinion on facts that we've heard from reputable sources. So our first story has to do with the glass fire and the glass fire is the most recent fire to hit California. Cause it's something that we're getting very good at apparently. And um, this one in particular has been extremely devastating for the entire wine industry. At this point, um, 17 total wineries have been destroyed. 215 wineries were evacuated um, most wineries have already come out and said that there will no, there will not be a 2020 vintage because most of them are actually in the middle of harvest when the fire started. At this point, there has been 4 million acres burned and the fire is as of today, which is October 5th, 41% contained. So with all of that said, Chris, what are your reactions to the glass fire, have you heard from any of the wineries that you work with and have any insight on what potentially they could do if, you know, they're, they're not going to be making a 2020 vintage? No, I, I haven't heard from any of my wineries. Um, I don't, I think that they are um, concentrating on other things rather than reaching out to their uh, point of sales contacts right now, but which is completely understandable. I mean, with 680,000 people uh, evacuated, you know, I, I think a lot of people are probably haven't even had a chance to take stock of, of all the damage so far. Um, just to give people an understanding, it has stretched. So Napa, the Napa Valley AVA is a little bit different than um, than the actual Napa Valley. So there's the Napa Valley in which you have like the Silverado Trail, which is the highway that runs up the, the middle of the valley. The Napa Valley um, viticultural area extends east over over the ridge um, that that that, you know, encapsulates the, the physical Napa Valley. And so there are some wineries on and hotels on that side, too. Um, so the, the fire started on, on that side of the ridge and has moved its way westward over the ridge and down actually into the valley crossing over the Silverado Trail. Um, last I saw, you know, like it it crossed over Schrompsburg. I was looking today to see if, if Schrompsburg had, had been ruined or if they had survived. Um, you know, you and I have a friend, uh, uh, Mr. Matt Brown, who's uh, who's folks live on the on the eastern side um what would be known as a uh, mount veter uh sorry on the western on the western hill uh what's known as mount veter and uh what was it three years ago when three years ago two years ago when when the fire came came into napa again or that fire uh hit napa the first time somehow their house their house had just been miraculously saved i mean you can i drove up there uh to visit their home say about a year ago uh matt and i went up and and there you could see looking down the hill just all the all the debris all the char all the like dead dead grass um the fire had moved so quickly that the trees were still alive, even though their bases were completely charred. I mean, we're talking like the inside of a barrel char, just super black and scaly. Uh, likewise, if you looked up the hill, 
it looked exactly the same. But somehow this fire had just, based on how the wind blew and whatnot, it just it went right around their home. Um, so I'm I'm praying for a lot of a lot of these wineries, hoping that they they can survive in the in a similar way. Yeah, yeah, it's um, you know obviously much more than wineries have been been caught up in it. You also had some pretty devastating photos from like Meadowood as well. Oh yeah. The entire, the entire, um, uh, resort completely, completely toast. Maybe that's, maybe that's an inappropriate descriptor. (laughs) Completely gone. (laughs) It is. Yeah, it is completely, it is completely gone. And, um, you know, like I said, they're, they're definitely making progress on, on keeping it contained at this point. And hopefully there won't be any more devastation, but, you know, in a year where like just the hits just don't seem to stop coming, it's just it's so devastating. And um, in some of the articles that I that I've read, you know, about it, you know, a lot of these people were were in the middle of harvest, and so you know, not only are they not reaching out to their um, their supply chains, but they're also just kind of not even making wine at this point and just not even thinking about it, just, you know, worried about their well-being and as they should be. It's just, I don't know. I, I really, really feel for these people and, you know, you're, you're trying to find ways that you can support them. And really what it's going to come down to is, is when the time comes and we're able to visit wineries and you do find that winery that you really care about, you know, buy as many vintages as you can, you know, yeah. see what's, yeah. see what's out there. And just try to um, try to support them in that way, because it's uh, it's going to be a long time. And you know, for some people, I mean, they're saying that Napa might never recover from this. And of course, you don't want to think that way. You want to try to be as positive as possible and and work on things to move move along. But I just. I just don't think that, I don't know, like, how do you find the energy? I mean, how do you, how do you look at something like in some of these pictures that you've seen and in a business where it's very hard to make money just to be like, yep. Okay. Let's start over. Let's, let's do this again. Like that, that's the point where, I mean, especially after the year that we've just had, right. Where sales were more than likely already super down and you're just you're trying you're trying to find ways to to keep the lights on and then this fire comes raging through and it's just it's just another thing on top of it and i think that's you know i, I feel for these people and definitely want to try to find those ways and support the ones that i really care about and um you know direct as many people down there as possible i have heard of some people doing the uh brandies with some of the wine and see how that turns out because smoke taint is something that's very real. But, um, but yeah, I guess we're just going to have to, we're going to see what happens, but ultimately, you know, when the time comes, if, if you have the means, you know, support these wineries any way that you can, whether it's buying bottles, buying futures maybe, or or anything like that. Yeah. You know, a few years ago when they had the earthquakes, um, that, that really ravaged, uh, uh, the valley as well. I, I sort of felt the same way. Um, and I think partially I was correct. You know, Nat, Napa Valley, um, until, until recently was primarily Hispanic, really. Um, uh, just based on, based on the history of you know it's a it's an agricultural community um and it's a huge agricultural part of california and with that it had a huge mexican population a huge hispanic population um that you know wasn't when you think wasn't how you think of napa now right in like in the 80s and 90s when all that money started pouring in and um, and there are a lot of not wealthy people who live in Napa because it's a lot of farmers. But that being said, you know when the when the earthquake started taking down homes, and then the fires last time started taking down homes, I felt just as distraught. You know, I was thinking, 
I think a lot of people just didn't didn't make it back home, as it were. You know, they had to they had to relocate. Um, I think in that sense, Napa will never really be the same, and especially if this continues, right? Because the people with money are going to be able to come back. Businesses, uh, at least hopefully most of them, you know, have at least some insurance and find the will to come back. Uh, you know, they can find investors again, um, depending on the size and, you know, the, the smaller ones, maybe not, but, you know, I think Schrompsburg will be just fine. Um, right. Uh, but you know, I, I think culturally you, you start seeing a shift in that way where, where people without money can't afford to stay there. So they go somewhere that's a little bit more stable. Um, and that, that changes the fabric of a community. I mean, it just, it, it just does. You know, getting the people who've worked the land for generations to up and leave, it's terrible. You know, so I think in that yeah. way, Napa, Napa, you're right, is is sort of is changing, especially with all these nat- natural disasters. But um, I think Napa Valley being a viticultural area, I think will, I don't think it's going anywhere, um, but it just might not be the place that we, we love to go still, you know. Yeah. So there's currently a bill that is that is being submitted that's going to be changing the relationships between distributors and suppliers in the state of South Carolina. And the reason that we bring this up is because earlier this year, we actually covered a similar story that happened in Michigan, where distributors were trying to just change the way that our system works. And um, it seems to be focused kind of in the beer world, but I think a lot of the things apply to spirits as well. So one of the things that this, that the, the distributors are looking to, you know, get out of is like kind of these, these ironclad contracts and these requirements that they're forced to, to abide by, whether that be having to spend their own money on marketing for different spirits and or beers that they're carrying, or if it's something like, um, sometimes what happens in this industry is a supplier will just send product to their distributor based on previous numbers and goals, even if the distributor hasn't ordered it. And so that immediately puts them into terms and everything like that. So distributors are trying to get out of these situations. And uh, Chris, you're the one that found this article. What were what were some of the things that jumped out to you? And how do you think this can change what maybe the three-tier system looks like if we have two states start to make those changes? Well, I I, I read it more as um, – and, and as – sort of a reinforcement of the three tier system um, and putting more, putting more structure on it than, than was previously there. I, I am interested, you know, I mean, I obviously we both represent two different, two sides of the three tier system. You know, I'm the point of sale and you're, you represent distribution. So I'm sure we have different ideas and, on on what this looks like but for me i see you know i often see the distributors at least for we'll say the larger the the larger distributors getting in the way of me being able to work with brands right um uh they often want to have control over uh what product goes where when it's when it's you know allocated um it gets you know, it gets difficult because then their legal team gets in the way if, let's say, we want to do an event, you know, uh, and then that gets in the way and they, they just, you know, have to have a piece of the pie, which legally speaking, absolutely, they totally need to have a piece of the pie. But I think there's this three-tier system as it was developed in the world that we live in, the culture that we have in this in this industry was never designed to operate in our current world and not... I actually don't have a um, a good answer for it. I, I thought I did a few years ago and I was wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and I, 
I don't know. I don't have a good answer. But what I see from this, uh, from what's going on here. So this is happening in South Carolina. And as well, uh, it, it was it was happening uh, in Michigan as well, where Michigan had brought a suit against uh, AB Bev, uh, Anheuser-Busch. And and that that court case is still still going on um, to sort of pressure uh, Anheuser-Busch to chill out. The South Carolina measure isn't – we don't know specifically if that has to do with Anheuser-Busch, but it seems like it does. Um, it seems like they're, they're the, the same culprit that's, that's forcing their beer distributors to carry more weight than they need to that is – you know, forcing them to pay for certain parts of their advertisement budget, um, you know, so on and so forth. And uh, I think if the roles were reversed, I think the distributors would be more than happy with accepting money from Anheuser Busch and forcing Anheuser Busch to do their own to do their own advertising. I think this is. I, I don't know what this is. It's interesting. I I I I'm not exactly sure how I feel about it. How do you how do you feel about this, Drew? When you're reading through these, when you're reading through these like these facts, and you're you're seeing, um, you know, f- from the the lawyer in uh, on the uh, sorry on the side of the um, of the distributor in South Carolina um, that the term sorry they're naming the bill uh, that. Uh, that's being argued here, the the tier independence bill. And I quote, the tier independence bill clarifies and supports current state law and ensures local South Carolina beer wholesalers remain totally independent businesses while working jointly with all brewer partners. This bill ensures our state's laws governing South Carolina's uh, beer industry continue to stimulate equal access to the market, regardless of size, promote consumer choice, and fair competition for all. Meanwhile, the lawyer, the lawyer for AB Bev said, states, uh, through the global health crisis, though, sorry, though the global health crisis has put significant pressure on the U.S. supply chain, Anheuser Busch has supported our wholesale wholesaler partners through our date code extension, our keg buyback program, and partnered with them to, uh, to deliver hand sanitizer to communities in need. We believe that this moment calls for all. Uh, calls for us to focus on the recovery uh, of the on-premise and our overall economy rather than on short-sighted legislative squabbles. And we remain committed to ensuring our consumers and our retailers continue to have access to our beloved brands. Anheuser-Busch fully supports the three-tier system, and we value our strong, long-standing relationship with our wholesalers. We work diligently with our partners in South Carolina to resolve these issues outside the walls of the legislature, and we are disappointed we could not reach an agreement. We pride ourselves on being collaborators, working with our partners for the good of our consumers, our community, and our collective businesses. So it sort of sounds like they're they're both saying the same thing, um, uh, but obviously the pressure is coming from uh, from, uh, ABBEV to really, I don't know, get the get the distributors to to work, to produce? Uh, how do you interpret that? I mean, I think it just comes down to, you know, and the one thing that, that for whatever reason, people don't like to talk about it in our industry, but like it is a business. And we're in the business of trying to make money, as much money as possible. And so... Well, fuck, I've know, been doing it wrong. You have been doing it very wrong, but we're going to get <laughs> you there. Um I think the, I think when you're a distributor and you're looking at this situation where a lot of, you know, you've lost a significant amount of your, of your business to bars and restaurants being closed, right? And even as they're starting to open back up, I mean, you've had in some situations, you know, dozens upon dozens of cakes sitting that are now expired beer and the bill has come due for the distributor from the supplier and they're and the bills come due with the restaurants, but no one's getting paid because restaurants haven't made any money. And I think there, some of these distributors, especially in this situation, right, where they're just kind of like, you know, we're not going to be responsible for doing marketing or paying for, um, you know, different promo models to go out there and, and push your stuff. Like you need to start 
bearing some of the the burden. Whereas the supplier comes back and says, you know, we're doing what we can to make this easier on you. You know, we're extending terms. We're we're putting out these expiration dates and we're trying to work with you on this. But at the end of the day, like they're both in the business of trying to make money. And I just think that they're trying to save themselves as much money as possible. And that's where the moves come from the distributor. They're trying to protect themselves more. And then the the supplier doesn't want to lose what they have. Right. So it's, you know, when I hear these things, I mean, it's just, it's, yeah, it's money squabbles and it's these huge companies that for years and years have done all kinds of, whether it be shady deals or were able to kind of, you know, get away with murder. And like now they're having to fight over just like dollars and like over cents instead of dollars. You know what I mean? And yeah, totally. You know, and you're seeing it here in California where it's like all of these different places who never qualified for allocated whiskeys before are now crushing, you know, and it's in the off in, in the off prem, you know, so your liquor stores and your big box stores and stuff like that. And it's spread these distributors so thin. They're like, oh, we don't know how we're going to make these numbers in other places. So they're getting more pressure from their suppliers because, you know, ultimately the supplier doesn't care. It's not like something that happens with some of these big guys like, well, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt, right? Because it's, we had, we had a global pandemic, like those conversations don't happen. And I can guarantee next year when, because each year the distributors is, is pitted against its numbers from the years before. Right. And, and I've listened to these discussions. I've been told about these discussions where it's like, I mean, I had an account the other day who was told that if they, they were doing good in certain categories, but they needed to show a 10% growth over last year at this point, if they were going to receive their allocation of different whiskeys, do you know what that 10% increase looked like? An additional 200 cases of spirits had to be brought into the store in order to qualify for that. What? There's yes. no way that's legal. And well, it's not, but um, that's, <laughs> that's very much so the, the point that is, that is not legal, but there that's, that's the measuring stick. And this year with just these gaudy numbers that some places are putting up, that's what they're going to be measured against next year. And it's, you know, it's this constant moving of the goalpost and stuff. And what you did for us previously, it doesn't work anymore. And the supplier is going to, you know, be cracking down on them as well. Now, from what I've learned from some of my uh, friends that like do have, do have like the big suppliers and stuff like that is with the loss of the off-prem or with the on-prem, you know, the restaurants, the bars, it has, and even though there's been a significant increase in liquor stores and things like that, their numbers are still down. So even though one segment of the industry is doing significantly better because the other segment is, is, you know, was completely wiped out those numbers, you know, they haven't been able to fully compensate. But again, next year, when these sales reps are going out to their different um, accounts and they're trying to build it up, they're going to be based off of pandemic numbers, you know, and it's going to be a nearly impossible situation. So again, you're going to, you're going to see distributors trying to renegotiate deals and they're going to, well, if you're not going to renegotiate with me, what I'll do is I'll go to the state and I'll have the state make some new rules that you're not willing to negotiate. Maybe the state will be, and they'll give me something that, you know, give me a little bit of an out that I don't have if I strictly focus on you and you alone. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a fair interpretation of the, at least the loose set of facts that we have so far. Um, I am I'm really interested to see how this uh, pans out. I mean, um, and I'm really really interested to see what happens in Michigan. You know, um, just because uh, Anheuser Busch has been brought to bear where they they passed the bill, but then you know Anheuser Busch was apparently still doing the same old thing and they're being investigated now in that way, which, you know, they were, they were being brought to court, uh, but then COVID hit. So who knows? 
right? Uh, <laughs> uh, so everything's sort of wishy-washy up in Michigan right now. But I, I'm interested to see where this all where this all lands and see what what comes out of this. Really, really adding more structure to the three tier system. I think I think is necessary. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure, um, but I think right now that. The way that it stands, the laws mostly get in the way of the little guys and the big guys have enough money to say, oops, sorry, we didn't know. And on to our final story in one that, you know, continues to to pop up when it comes to our discussion. And I think people are starting to figure out what we're really into. And that is private collections going up for auction. Yeah. So <laughs> this past week, um, there was, I mean, and it seems like this is the third time this has happened this year, but the largest private whiskey collection is up for auction. Um, this collection is known as Pat's Whiskey Collection, and it consists of nine thousand over 9,000 bottles and then an additional 2,000 miniatures. This is a collection that has been meticulously put together over the past 15 years. Um, it is a combination of Scotch, Irish whiskey, and then many whiskey offerings from the United States, but there are also dozens of other countries that are represented as well. Um, and with this collection going up what whiskey auctioneer has decided to do is to break it up into a couple different sections so currently right now and actually it ends today is the collection of all the scotch that is in the collection and then following that it'll get into the american whiskey and what's really cool about it is the whiskey auctioneer has actually started a club that you can join and it's called Pat's Whiskey Club. And what that's going to do is it's going to give you access to early opportunities to become, like, to grab one of these whiskeys for yourself. It'll also be um, a place to learn about whiskey collecting, get some tips on it, and also different exclusive uh, content and insider access. So um, I guess, you know, I guess for my question to you, Chris, is do you ever envision a moment in your life where you're going to look at your collection and go, yep, I got 9,000 bottles. I made it. <laughs> I don't think Jen will let me do that. <laughs> I also don't think she'll let you do that. That would be really hard to hide. Uh, uh, shit. I, can, I, can you imagine I, just like the, the storage logistics that go into having 11,000 whiskey bottles in different shapes and forms just like you I know mean, that's, that's what do you do larger than my store uh, you know like i it's that's that's so much room you need a house just for your bottles yeah uh, which i guess if you can afford to have that many bottles then having a house for your bottles is probably no big deal uh, right Right. I mean, especially after you sell off some of these, um, I was looking at the the finishing bid on uh, one of the one of the items I was watching uh, when we first learned about this this auction, um, uh, and Pat's McAllen fifty year old uh, Lalik Six Pillars um, edition. Let's see, edition one. Sorry, not so collection one. Uh, went for uh, ninety three thousand five hundred euro. His collection number two went for nine hundred and fifty. Sorry, ninety five thousand five hundred euro. Um, that's just two bottles. Uh, what I find fun about this is Pat. Pat didn't want to be identified. He just he's a Frenchman. That's all we know, and he goes by Pat. That's all we know. Or at least whis whiskey auctioneer has decided to to hide his name so that way people don't hit him up, which is probably also smart, <laughs> right? Someone who respects right. his own privacy. Um, uh, so Pat, my man, 
show me how you collected that many bottles. I I do. Um, I mean, you know, I have a, a I have a, a modest collection of some things that are that are fun, and I, I have also been enjoying cracking some of those open and, and sharing them. Uh, I have one that I'm going to sit on until it's a uh, hundred years old, uh, which you know, 2036. So we got we got 15 more years. Uh, so that'd be all right. Uh, I'm saying 15 years because this year is almost over, and I kind of just don't want to count this year. So, um, uh, but you know, my modest collection is fun. You know, and I I imagine that I will always collect certain bottles. Um, most likely not bottles that. I don't know. I don't know what I'm, I'm going to, what criteria I'll use for collecting. I probably need to come up with some to make it easier for myself to figure out what I want to collect. But uh, as of right now, it tends to be primarily whiskeys and then brands that I know are undergoing some sort of change, you know, like whether they're removing age statements, whether they're, uh, they're master distiller passes or retires, you know, uh, so on and so forth. I, and just, with understanding that some of these bottles that are approachable now might be sought after in the next like 10, 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, you know, the, the thing that makes it tough for me is that I just enjoy drinking this stuff too much. Amen. That it's, I mean, I don't, don't get me wrong. There's definitely a couple whiskeys in my collection that I have no intention of ever drinking. I fully intend on selling them at some point. I just don't know when that is. Um, but if it was something like a rum, so for example, like I'm just, I'm looking at some of the rum auction right now and there's just all kinds of really amazing, cool options that are unique and different. And, and I just don't think that I could survive knowing that that bottle existed and I wasn't drinking it, <laughs> you know? So for example, there is a, um, there's a long pond, 1986 silver seal, 21 year old. I saw that. And, and the current bid on it is $205 or euros. So, you know, I don't know what conversions are. I know that it's worth more than the American dollar. So maybe like $300 for that. Uh-huh, right. Uh-huh. uh-huh. It's like I would spend that and then drink that with my friends almost immediately. So, like, you know, with a lot of these guys, the fact that they're able to to purchase these bottles as like investments, which I have a tremendous amount of respect for that they have that kind of restraint. But it's just like, it's like, what do you drink? Like, that's what I always want to ask these guys. Like when you have 9000 bottles and you were like. I mean, are, do you drink or is it a situation that you're just collecting? Cause like, what's the thing that makes it, makes it go for you where you're just kind of like, Oh, I collect 9,000 bottles, but I drink this one, <laughs> you know, like where, <laughs> what does that look like? Or, you know, do you, do you drink stuff that sucks? Like, I just don't, I, I would, that, that would be the question I'd have to ask somebody where if I found out that they had some like monster, monster collection. I mean, the, I think the, biggest collection that i'm aware of that i actually know this person is i think it's 1300 bottles 1400 bottles of like very collectible whiskeys and in particular scotches but i know that they pretty much primarily only drink mezcal now like that's where all their consumption is they rarely rarely drink single malts so you know, they're still drinking. They're just, they're not drinking what they spent years and years collecting and they no longer collect. They just have the collection now. But I just, I'd be curious to know, like when you get to, you know, that many bottles, 9,000, it's just kind of like, God, what do you consume? Because the, the amount of restraint that you've shown is quite ridiculous. Uh, well, maybe, uh, maybe not. Maybe, maybe the, can maybe, I mean, at least in terms of Pat, right? The 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 story, the reason why his collection was so impressive was just based on how complete it was. Just how many bottles within a collection, within the series that there were. So when you're collecting a series of things, uh, 
it probably makes it easier not to consume that one bottle, right? That is within that series because then you fuck up that series. But let's say you buy a case of them if you come across it. You could probably drink six of them. You know, that's give, true. Give one or two to a homie, and then you can still maintain that collection, right? Like he, he like, like the collection could have been seventeen thousand, but he drank <laughs> yeah. that much. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. I guess we are. I guess I am underestimating that maybe this person, you know, did do that. And you know what? Those those people exist. Um, I recently had a situation where. You know, anytime that somebody finds out that I'm in this business, you know, the first question they always ask is, you know, can you get me a bottle of Pappy? And the reality is, is like, yeah, I probably can get you a bottle of of Pappy, but are you willing to pay for it? And in this situation, this person was willing to pay for it. And not only were they willing to pay for it once, they were willing to pay for it twice and even three times had I found a third bottle. Yeah. And, you know, and that's just a a situation where it's so foreign to me that I'm, even though I'm in this business every single day where someone can just be like, yep, I'm just going to drop a few thousand dollars on a couple bottles of, of whiskey. Like it's just, it's insane, but it happens. And, you know, we've, we've said since the beginning, since we really, cause you know, we do, we do talk about auctions a lot. It's like, these can be really great investments for people. And they, you just never know, what is going to be that whiskey that just really, you know, takes off for you or just something cool. Like, I mean, to your point, I kind of collect the same way. Like I really like to collect old format bottles. Like when they change packaging, like I love having old packaging of stuff. Like the juice doesn't mean that it's amazing or anything like that, but it's like, Oh, I can get something that's old packaging. So for example, I mean, on this, on this rum website right now, like there's an old bottle of the lemon heart 151 and it's probably going to, you know, cost around 150 bucks. It's like, it's like, man, that's a really tempting offer because it's the old packaging that you never see anymore. And what I, what I tend to have a lot of luck with, especially when it comes to rum is that with as many different stores that I go to and a lot of like small divey stores and stuff like that, most people sleep on rum, right? So I've been able to find all these old format rum bottles that are super affordable and they just don't make them anymore. And then I end up gifting them to like my friends who also collect that stuff, you know, or just kind of like, hey, check this out. I've been able to do that. So if you if you can find me like an old format bottle, like that's really what I'm I'm going to collect. Unfortunately, that doesn't really mean that it's ever going to increase in value. So I guess I'm not good at this is what I'm trying to say um, <laughs> from an investment standpoint. But if you're ever curious on like what rum Clement used to look like, I got you. Like I have, I have multiple examples, which is really exciting for me. <laughs> well, what I also like is that, uh, out of the, out of the collectible bottle, you just keep the, you keep refilling it with rum Clement just so you keep drinking out of that bottle, which makes well, me there happy. is, there is that one. Yeah, I do. I do love that graffiti bottle. So I will, I mean, it's, it's my infinity bottle. That's only, one rum it's not a <laughs> it's not a blend so for, for people at home what it's not how that what, works yeah what an infinity bottle is when you get down to let's say like the last 10 to 15 percent of of your spirit there is this concept where you can start to add in other spirit on top of that and you can kind of create your own blend and the thought process behind it is if you really love this rum, this whiskey, this whatever, you'll always have a little bit of that spirit still in there, even though you've continued to refill it and add different things in there. But it'll always be like, so like, let's say it is like the rum Clement VSOP. Like you'll always have that one VSOP in there. It'll kind of always be in there, even if it's not. And so people do like their own blends and it's a good way to, kind of kill off a lot of bottles who that might sit for too long and get over oxygenated. So it's, it's something to do. But like for me, my infinity bottle is just the fact that I take other VSO, VSOP bottles and then put them into this collectible one that I absolutely love and that you can no longer get. So, um, so yeah, I'm also, a, I'm also, I'm also bad at that. I think that's, <laughs> I think it's just a decanter at that point in time. <laughs> 
Pretty, which I, I mean, which I know is yeah. a, it's an idea that's a, a cancer concept is something that's also kind of new to you. So that's fine. I'll, I'll give you the pass. Well, I mean, it's not that it's it's not that a decanter is new to me. It's that I like to decant in my belly. So <laughs> it's not that I didn't know what it was. I just goddamn was like, cretin. <laughs> well, and and you know, just but I think it also comes from from years and years of drinking California wine. And the thing with California wine, for the most part, is like it's ready to go right away. I mean, you yeah. can you technically you can decant it, but if you just want to drink it, you can just drink it. Um, as I've expanded my drinking into, you know, a lot more French and Italian wines as well as Spanish. And then of course, getting deep into my portfolio, which consists of, you know, wines from Mexico, Georgia, Lebanon, like all over the place, like those, a lot of those wines, 100% require you to let them chill out a little bit. And, um, that's just something that I wasn't willing to do. And now that I do do it, um, because you peer pressured me into it. I definitely, <laughs> I definitely, you know, appreciate it. So it's, um, yeah, like I said, I, I don't collect the right way. And then I also, I also don't do infinity bottles the right way. So <laughs> yeah, well, maybe, not... maybe if we both collect poorly together, we'll stumble upon doing it the right way. I look, I look forward, I look forward to that day when we can have like our, um, like Chris and Drew's somewhat mediocre spirits collection. Oh my God. That's wonderful. <laughs> have a, have an unveiling. Like, all right. What'd you get? <laughs> Brown bag it all the way through. Oh my God. You know who's dope? Them over there. All right. So now on to one of my, probably my favorite, favorite subject now that we do, or favorite, favorite section. And that is our dope follows of the week. And I have a pretty good one and actually a brand new one to me. So this week across the United States is, this is the Bartender Guild's Education Week. So bartenders guilds from all over the country and probably all over the world actually are doing educations this week. Um, Sacramento used to have a chapter. We huh. really? don't anymore. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I don't know what the, I don't know really what the situation is, but either way, Sacramento's not doing anything uh, right now. Yeah. I'm not, and, I'm not uh, feeling jaded about that at all. Yeah, as Chris is the former president of that, the, so the, fo- his, the founding president, thank the you founding president, so his legacy is dead. Yep. Um, however, Hawaii has a bartenders guild, and it is a guild that I've been fortunate enough to present to before. And I saw some of our mutual friends posting about their first education that they did yesterday, and I was like, "Oh shit, I can go and do some educations." So I hit up their president, our good buddy, uh, Daniel. And he was just like, he's like, Oh dude, just register for whatever you want to come to. They're all free. And just, if there's anything that jumps out at you, come hang out. So, so I went to one today and it was, it was really cool. It was hosted by Ben Flores and he is the bar manager at the highbrow room in, in, I believe he's in Oahu and what he talked about today was uh, the, the title of the of the training was your library card is just as important as your blue card. So to be a bartender in Hawaii, you actually have to get certified and you have to do like a test and things like that. We actually talked about it with Antoine Nixon um, last year at some point because he went and did a guest spot out there and actually had to get certified before he could do that. And so today, what Ben talked about was how you educate yourself and how far that education can take you. And what I really liked about it was that he's very old school about stuff. And so I am the same way that when I, if I really want to learn something, I have to write it down. I can't just put it into a computer. I can't put it into my notes. I won't retain it the same way. I have to physically write it on a piece of paper and I want to keep my notes that way. 
And I get a lot of flack from that because people are like, embrace the future, you caveman. And I'm like, no, I just, this is, this is how I do it. No, I absolutely. I'm the same way. I, I, uh, I have to write things down. In fact, I, I write down all our notes while we're doing this and I, I doodle at the same time too. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so, so for, for Ben, he's the same way. And he actually like, you know, up the ante a little bit too. Like he was talking about carrying around flashcards, which I was like, all right, let's take it easy there. But, um, but it was a really cool talk. And I think what was fun is towards the end, we were talking about different recommendations on books and stuff like that. And it was really cool to see what other people recommended and what they really, um, really what's their go-to for information and stuff like that. So um, you can find Ben on Instagram and it's the Lord Flor- Flores, I think is, I think is how he pronounces it. And it's, so it's T-H-E-L-O-R-D. F L O R E S. And, um, like I said, he's, he's at the highbrow room. So if you find yourself in Hawaii, which I, again, I believe he's in Oahu, um, go check it out. He just, you know, he's a guy who takes, who takes his stuff very serious. So, so obviously I'm a fan of that. And he was just, he was really cool. He was really, really personable. Um, and, uh, I just really enjoyed it. So that's someone that I actually got introduced to today and am already, uh, a big fan uh chris who's your dope follow this week uh well before i get to that uh i i'm gonna i i'm gonna double down on that and and say that i i miss the days when uh there weren't a million books around uh and not everybody and their mom had a cocktail book and uh it's it's been a point of uh, labor for us at the store to find the dope books, the books that are like worth carrying um, and start bringing those in. And it's been, it's taken us a while. Uh, Yvonne, uh, our, our worker guy, as he's uh, belovedly been knighted by Emily's children. <laughs> um, the worker guy, <laughs> the worker guy <laughs> um, uh, has uh, has taken that on, and so I've I've dubbed him the keeper of the pages, and he started using that on his uh, professional professional emails to publishers, and they respond back to him as the keeper of the pages, and that's that's probably one of my m- most favorite things that's happened recently, and it's all because I, of I, books. I do have to interject here because when you right before you first opened, I also did that for you. Where you did, you did. I re- I reached out to numerous publishers and put you in contact with with a um, with an unreal amount of them. I don't. I'm not too upset about it because at the same time you were basically a chicken with your head cut off trying to open up a store and had no idea what you were doing. Still, kind of don't, but you're getting closer. <laughs> well, and um, I was, and my daughter was being born at the same time. Oh, so, whatever. Um, <laughs> um, no, it was before then. It was before. It was close, but it was before then. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's awesome. And Yvonne is definitely one of one of our favorite people. And he's also like one of those guys that every time I talk to him, I learn some like new interesting fact about him. And none of it ends up being surprising because you're just kind of like, of course you're into that, or of course you're this, or of course you know that. You know, it's just kind of, you know, he's like this little evil genius and of in he's a he's a great person to put in charge of something like that because you know there there are a lot of really terrible books out there and it blows my mind some of the people who have gotten opportunities to write things and then what they decide to put on paper that's like like, this is like this is forever like you (laughs) You know, and like I have friends now that have books that they'll say something dumb to me and then I'll quote something from their book to throw it back in their face. You oh, know, that's lovely. That's lovely. And it's just, they're just kind of like, they're like, listen, man, I didn't have a whole lot of options back then. I'm like, it's fucking forever. You said that. You said that <laughs> and it's forever now. So, <laughs> you know, you're not, you can't hide from it because hmm. it's fucking forever. Well, that's why you publish um, new editions. Oh, that's yeah. I, this person definitely needs to do that. So, um, but yeah, I think it's it's it was cool. And, and actually, like one of one of the things that that Ben had mentioned during that is, you know, it's it's good to have your own library built up. I mean, I I personally have 
quite a few books. I think I'm probably somewhere, uh, man, in the 40 to 50 range for just booze related offerings. And there's multiple ones that I'm, I mean, I'm constantly referencing them and going back through them. And so I just, I can't encourage that enough for anybody, even if you, you know, even not even being in this industry, if you're outside of it and you just enjoy drinking whiskey or rum or something like that, like there's, there's, there are a lot of good offerings. I mean, like I said, there are some bad ones. So just, you know, shoot us a message if you want to know the good ones. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was just cool. It was cool to sit, it was cool to sit through someone's presentation like that that had such a huge emphasis on education and learning and just bettering yourself you know like i think not enough people just read in general so the Amen. fact that they had uh the fact that they that the ybg was able to dedicate an entire you know class to it i thought was just super rad so so you know while you're at it you know follow ben but also follow the hawaii bartenders guild they do they're they're good people yeah yeah they they do a good job out there all right, my uh, my f- dope follow of the week is uh, Schmuck or Die. Uh, it is the alternative uh, uh, Instagram page for the uh, the renewed or the uh, from the from the flames uh, two schmucks in Barcelona. Um, it is a bar that I wish that I had been able to go to when I was in Barcelona. But they were closed. And I was so bummed. I wanted to go so bad. Um, but Schmuck or Die is the is the new page. Um, the one of the original owners, I believe, has moved out of country, and the original owner still still is there. But I think he's he's passing on um, he's passing on responsibility and creative control, I believe, to some of the employees, which is kind of cool. And uh, they, they've always been a, a bar program that I've admired from afar. It, they they just seem fun and approachable. They, at the beginning of COVID, they were in the process of a cross-country um, American trip of like guest bartending and like seeing bars that they wanted to go see and, and what have you. And then they got stuck here. <laughs> I think they were stuck in uh in the south they got stuck in like new orleans and then i think they made their way to tennessee and i think maybe to houston they were crash crashing on couches while they were uh not allowed to necessarily leave because all the airports were locked down um and finally were able to get home but uh schmuck or die schmuck being the yiddish word uh s-c-h-m-u-c-k or die all one word uh it's it's great you get a lot of um, content that is bar related and then just re- bartender ridiculousness as well. Uh, and so it, it brings me, it brings me a lot of joy when I come across some of their good posts. They definitely sell a shirt that on the front of it, all it says is eat a dick. Yep. And yep. then on the back it says, don't be a dick, be a schmuck. So, um, so I'm going to need that shirt. Cause that's amazing. Right I think it's now. fairly it's fairly self evident why I like them. But, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I you know with with more of these, you know, coming across more and more international bars, it's like God, I cannot wait to start traveling again and to go to a lot of these places that I have just completely become obsessed with over the past few months as we just like fantasize about leaving and being able to travel again. And um, yeah, I'm just going to add this to the list. Here's another one. Yeah, actually, Jen and I were, uh, were discussing, actually, we've been discussing this a lot uh, through the course of our, uh, our pandemic lockdown is that this is the, the longest time we've ever been without, without traveling uh, either her or me. And then also collectively uh, yeah. having, a, having a baby will do that to you, but then also uh, having a, a global pandemic, will definitely put a put a quick halt to that as well Uh, yeah it's a bummer it is a bummer but um but hey go go follow schmuck or die and it'll be like you're there place that's right (laughs) (laughs) great follow that's right (laughs) all right buddy that sounds pretty good uh 
You find your you find the music drop. Oh, I sure did. The end. Here it yeah. is. You guys ready for this? Uh What about the champagne bottle pop? Oh god, you're calling me out on everything here. <laughs> Pick up bottle podcast is a production of Fluid Concept. Edited, researched, and produced by these two guys. Music is by two talented brothers of some sort of handsomeness. Leon and Chase Moore. Before we go and kill these bottles, I actually already killed mine. So, you know, there's that. Uh, that we've been drinking. We ask that if you enjoyed this episode, please smash that subscribe button. Leave us a five-star review. Because we're cool. And you like us. And... Not only can you do that, but you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. That's where you'll find out when new episodes drop. And then occasionally we do other content, but mostly it's just about dropping new episodes. That's right. And I threw out my last page. <laughs> it's just amateur. Here, I got it right oh, in front of me, so I'm, I'm going oh, to do it for the both of us. Oh, if, uh, if you would like us to cover a story or if you are a brand that wants to be featured – please email us at the good bottle podcast at Gmail, which I should probably check that because it's been a while. And then as a reminder, you can purchase any of the bottles that we drank on this episode at the good So until next time. Cheers. cheers homie. Buddy. Yay. <laughs> Thank you.